Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast, Breaking the Rules. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, and also the host of the Popular New Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website at robertpearlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Marty Macri, a nationally renowned surgeon, professor, author, and medical commentator. His most recent book, The Price We Pay, describes how business leaders can lower healthcare costs and explores opportunities to restore medicine to its noble mission. Hi, Marty. This is the third episode of season seven of Fixing Healthcare. Our focus is on breaking the rules of healthcare. Its premise is that small changes won't be enough to address the many challenges of American healthcare, the problems are just getting worse too rapidly. The focus is on the unwritten rules, the ones we learn in medical school and residency, not in lecture halls or textbooks, but that we master by observing how attending physicians and chief residents act. As you know, often we're not aware of what they are, but when the vast majority of physicians behave in the same way, there must be a rule that everyone understands and follows. So let me ask you, what do you think are the four or five most broken parts of the American healthcare system and the care that physicians provide? And after you identify them, let's delve deep into each. Okay, sounds good, Robbie. Great to see you again. Thank you for having me. And it's always a pleasure talking with you, especially given your expertise and experience and all your books that I've enjoyed. I would say that the big areas that we don't talk about that we need to talk about are the appropriateness of care, which is now getting some traction in the world of so-called precision medicine or the inverse addressing low value care. Another is the cost crisis. And it's something that we've got to pay attention to. Another is the concentration of power in academic medicine. It lives with among a few individuals who control <clears throat> the editorial gates of journals, and that's not healthy for any open scientific dialogue. Another is care coordination. We still have people fall through the, cra the cracks, and we have people who not only die from the illnesses that bring them to care, but they die from the care itself. That's something that we still can do much better on. And finally, how we educate and train our young professionals. We have focused on rote memorization so heavily that we've almost lost track of humility, self-awareness, and basic uh, skills of human connection, what we call the non-technical skills of life. It's those skills that make a difference, not just our technical skills. That sounds like a great agenda. Let's start with the appropriateness of care. What do you see as being an outdated rule in this area? 
And how would you change it? How would you break it? What would you replace it with? What are your thoughts about what we need to do differently going forward? Well, this is a really exciting area in medicine right now. I call it the appropriateness of care. It goes by many names, just like if you will, holistic medicine goes by many names, functional medicine, and none of them truly capture the spirit of what a sort of holistic approach to patients is. And same with appropriateness of care. It doesn't, no one term, be it addressing low value care or improving precision medicine, truly captures what we're talking about. But let me describe it to you. If there's one theme in the medical literature in the last seven or eight years, if you had to string together every publication and identify one common thread, that thread would be that indications that we thought were broad are far more narrow than we previously recognized. And that the group of patients that benefit from our interventions are a subset of the larger group in, in which we are applying those interventions. Now that's good news. It means that we're getting better. And it also means that at the same time, we've got to have our eyes open and pull back on some of the things that we've been doing. For example, when I was in medical school, we decided to recommend one medication for every single living adult human being in the world every day. We decided as a medical community that every single human being should take a medicine once a day. And that medicine was aspirin. Well, it wasn't really that straightforward. It turns out that surgeons were talking about GI bleeds they were seeing in people from aspirin that were sometimes fatal. Uh, neurologists were describing hemorrhagic stroke. And it turns out that in the final analysis, the number of individuals harmed from aspirin exceeded those saved from the reduction in heart disease in low risk among low risk adults. So the US Preventive Service, Services Task Force is now pulling back that really reversing what was a colossal recommendation into one that again is highly selective for precise audience. So we're seeing that in every area of medicine in my own field of surgery, we're seeing appendectomy now applied to a subset of those who have appendicitis instead of everybody. Uh, antibiotic treatment is, is a more accepted first line therapy now supported by three RCTs. This is the appropriateness of care. This is where we can now talk about how can we do better and be more precise? When we talk about drug prices in the United States, we can talk about PBMs and the middleman and the waste and the gouging and all of those topics that I love talking about. I've described in the book, The Price We Pay, it sort of talks about our cost crisis as a business of medicine 101 approach. But let's be honest, the best way to reduce drug prices is to stop taking medications we don't need. Medication prescriptions have doubled over the last um, 10 years. They're, these are the areas where we can do better. Morty, do you see a role for artificial intelligence in helping physicians to understand the particular procedure, whether it's indicated for an individual patient or not? <laughs> well, I, uh, you must live in Northern California because that's a common idea that floats in the Silicon Valley circles. And I know you're on the cutting edge of things. And yes, the answer is yes. I think there's a big role, but I often joke around with our own hospital administration when they banner the idea of allowing AI to help us do something. I remind them 
we don't need AI right now. We just need I. We, we just need some basic common sense. We have not figured out some of our most basic processes. So let me push one level deeper then. As you point out, physicians often don't do the approaches, provide the care that evidence-based literature indicates. How do we change that in a way to ensure that every patient gets the right care, the best care each time? Well, I think it's, it's probably the most challenging problem we have in all of medicine. And that is, how do you advance best practices? And at the same time, allow people to have the individual liberty to custom tailor treatments for their individual patients all of whom are different, and at the same time, do new things, try new innovations and push the field to uh, study different ways of approaching things. So this is the ultimate challenge in medicine because we're not, do we're not doing very well. We've got a 17-year uh, lag time between best practices being widely adopted from when they are first described in the literature with solid evidence. So what we are trying to do through our work is to try to show doctors where they stand around what we call high value practice patterns relative to their peers. In other words, show them where they stand on the bell curve. Traditionally, what we've done in medicine is something that's not very healthy. That is, we just show utilization data back to doctors where we show them organizational level complications like infection rates for an entire center or unit. When you show data on an aggregate basis, people don't feel that it's them. They uh, don't change their behavior as a result. And so what we're doing is we're really feeding organization level back to organizations and that data is not actionable. If I show an individual where they stand on the bell curve when it comes to their individual um, rate of performing something that they should be performing frequently, then you see tremendous improvement immediately, sort of an auto correction. There's nobody gets punished. Nobody's, there's no high powered consultants that are rolled in. This is basic data feedback and it's something that we're finding is very powerful. It's been called Dear Doctor Letters. It's been called Internal Data Transparency. And so that is a very exciting area in medicine right now. And I think it does help advance best practices and reduce low value care. Let's dive into the second area you spoke about, which is the cost crisis. And we could spend a huge amount of time and you have in prior Fixing Healthcare episodes described issues around exorbitant drug pricing, hospitals that consolidate simply to raise the dollars they can charge insurers and so on in the systemic realm. But what do you see within the care delivery process that contributes to the cost crisis? What are the rules we need to break to change it going forward? Well, I think the cost crisis in healthcare, having spent a lot of time on this topic, is really a function of three factors. One is pricing failures in the marketplace that enable price gouging. 
And they also enable the second factor, which is a giant growth of a middleman industry. This, this is a group of thousands of millionaires that we've created who are not patient facing, who are um, not contributing to patient outcomes. They're simply processing things like repricing claims and managing pharmacy benefits for employers. This is a massive industry. As a matter of fact, when United Healthcare was uh, reported in their quarterly earnings on Wall Street to have a 25% uh, growth in revenue from the prior year, they were asked why such a big jump in one year? How do you make that much more money in healthcare in one year? Like things are not changing that much. This is pre-COVID, the year pre-COVID. And they responded by saying it was because of their pharmacy benefit manager company. They, have a, they own a pharmacy benefit manager. So you're seeing this tremendous growth in the middleman industry. We as physicians are in the best position to fix that because we can go direct. We can bypass it. And finally, the third biggest driver of our cost crisis is uh, care coordination. Now, care coordination is such a mess because we've only decided to incentivize doing things and not incentivize the overall coordination of care. So this is mostly a failure of, pay, of the payment system, not a failure in the morals or altruism of the people we attract in medicine. Let's talk a little bit more about the cost crisis and the idea of the physician being able to bypass the middle manager. If we look at an area, let's just take what's called uh, biosimilars, very expensive drugs, the 10 most expensive drugs in the United States. Sometimes there's no alternative besides the patent controlled medication with a very, very high price tag, but often there are alternative drugs that at least in the research laboratory and the research clinical experience have been shown to be equally effective. And yet physicians often will prescribe the drug that has the the brand name on the prescription pad that the rep gave them rather than the far less expensive agent, justifying it by saying the patient's out-of-pocket will be identical, but of course the total cost contribution to the American healthcare system is exceedingly difficult. How do you see this problem and how do we break that rule that it's okay to prescribe a more expensive drug before you've tried a less expensive, equally efficacious one? <laughs> Well, I think, first of all, we don't know the price of most of the things that we're prescribing. Now, that's starting to change, especially in oncology. And so, again, internal data transparency where we can show somebody how much of one bone-sparing agent versus the other that they're prescribing as an oncologist, because the second one was approved in a non-inferiority study, wasn't better, but because it's more recently FDA approved, there's a tremendous buzz that this is the hot new thing and this is what you should be prescribing. Well, it's tons more expensive. So we are now saying, hey, we wanna show you how much you're prescribing drug A versus drug B when we know they're, they're equivalent. And um, that should be a part of how we practice medicine. It should be a factor. We should be able to <clears throat> know these prices Financial toxicity is a medical complication. And billing quality is medical quality. 
These are things that are measurable, but up till now, we've only been measuring infection rates and readmission rates. We've got to start measuring billing quality performance and the price of services. Like you, I am very concerned about the cost of medical care because I think it's leading people in many cases to not get the medical care that they need and desire because they simply can't afford the out-of-pocket expenditure. They can't afford even the coverage in many, many cases. And when I speak about this in meetings, invariably the first person at the microphone asking me a question points out how much money we spend at end of life, how it's often exceedingly futile and asks, what, do we, what should we do about it? So let me point, point that question to you. How do you see end of life? What are the rules that we were trained in? Should they change? And if so, how? It's interesting because the area of end of life um, is a large, a big opportunity to reduce unnecessary healthcare costs. However, it is the most difficult out of all the areas of financial waste to uh, rein in. And here's what I mean by it. I can point to, uh, to and show you in detail areas of waste in healthcare where anybody, doesn't matter what political party they are, uh, have allegiance to, will agree that it's egregious, it's corrupt, it should stop, and it is uh, wrong. Now, there's a lot of those things in healthcare, actually. There's a lot of area where there's broad consensus, but reining in um, inappropriate care at the end of life is one of the most challenging because it is still and always will be an art form. It's not something that can be managed with policies or rules. It always needs to be sensitive to the individual goals of the patient, the family, the wishes, the realistic nature of pulling through the what's the gray line of futility versus heroic measures. How long do you persist for? Look, I have a lot of experience with this in the ICU, patients that may have a very advanced cancer and also in the short term, separate from that very advanced cancer are struggling in a way that if they get through, you know, may give them a couple more months, maybe several months before that stage four cancer then statistically is likely to take their life. And so at what point do you say, look, they, they really want to live those, you know, try to live for those several more months. If we do everything here for another day or two, we might be able to um, deliver on that. But after a day or two, let's reevaluate. And maybe at that point, we've crossed over into feudal care. These are very difficult decisions. I've had um, people tell me that a patient is, you know, we should stop doing everything. And I've thought, no, this patient can really get through this the way I see it. You know, these are correctable um, problems in the ICU, and it's at least worth trying a little more since the patient and their family are motivated. And the patient gets through and they have a great outcome. And then on the flip side, I've had this, you know, delusion where I think, you know, maybe they can get through this and people tell me, no, it, you know, it's starting to border on fuel care. And then the patient um, doesn't get through it. And I realized, you know what, we, we went too far. So these are very def difficult decisions. I've seen 
you know, both extremes. And the best thing we can do is have the conversations, teach our residents and trainees to make decisions with the nurses and the family members, get to know the patients before we care for them. When I um, evaluate somebody for surgery, I want to get to know them. I'm not, I'm not just doing a procedure on an assembly line. I don't, I want to understand their goals or wishes. I give them different scenarios, you know, that what the rate of recurrence is of the cancer, even if we successfully remove it and get and watch their expression and see what they think. You know, some people come up to me and I give them the odds and they say, you know, doc, I've had a good life. Thank you for these options, but I think I'm okay without doing the surgery. That's okay, right? We don't have to convince them to do what our protocols slot them to do. And by the same token, you know, we'll get some people who say, look, um, I want to swing for the fence and let's, you know, let's try to remove this cancer, even though it's got a 90% recurrence rate. And if, you know, they're a candidate and they're motivated, we're going to go to bat for them. Let's move on to this issue of the concentration of power in academic medicine. This certainly ties into unwritten rules of medicine that date back centuries in Europe and early in American healthcare. I'm gathering that you think that they are outdated in the 21st century. How should they be changed? <laughs> you know, there was a time in the medical profession where in order to get a medical degree in the English empire, you had to have a degree from Oxford or Cambridge at a time when neither Oxford nor Cambridge offered pre-medical education. It was just sort of a, an, a sort of a uh, royal lineage, if you will. It was an oligarchy and they had all of these rules and we still have these rules in American medicine. And we, they, many of them live in this so-called academic promotion process. And that is a major barrier, in my opinion, to scientific advancement. People playing the game to get promoted. And we see that a lot. And so what you have, not just with the academic promotion process, but with the NIH hierarchy, is this interest in small incremental scientific um, descriptions and not big new ideas. The big new ideas, it turns out, are very difficult to work on. Um, they're high risk, right? That the intervention may not work. They are expensive. They require a lot of buy-in from the senior you know, researchers who may be vested in their own ideas in terms of the theory of why something should be done or not done. And so when, let's say you get take a, a very talented and bright young uh, physician, fresh out of school, maybe they have um, a lot of research uh, background, maybe they have a research interest in something in particular, maybe they have an MD and a PhD. And you take these highly creative people who are observing our medical sociology and the way we do things from a very, from a fresh standpoint, and they have a big idea. Well, they can't act on it. It's almost impossible. You've got to apply through a very clunky process at the NIH. It then goes to a study section of senior P 
people who all have their own ideas on how things should be done. And there's uh, very little uh, funding out there for them to, to do these kind of things. That's, that's a broken process. Marty, when we talk about breaking the rules, one of the things that comes to mind is how outspoken you were during COVID. People like Z-Dog, you, Vinod Prasad, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, et cetera, were never scared to go against the grain. Uh, you're considered to be one of the top minds in healthcare in the country, yet I can't even count the number of times on Twitter I saw people with no healthcare background at all totally dismissing anything you said as misinformation or dismissing your background, saying that you had no idea what you were talking about. In science, I was always under the impression that the more the, the more credible ideas brought to the table, the better. Instead, quote unquote, rule breakers, such as yourself, who went against the grain were criticized, censored, and silenced. Um, even when you said things that were later proven to be true, no one went back and apologized to you. And you know, people are right now so quick to shut down anyone that goes against the grain. Can you talk about what is going on with this and kind of how you feel about the current state of you know, rule breakers even being able to speak their minds even when they're right. <laughs> well, first of all, this is a trend <clears throat> outside of medicine. This is a trend in society and it's driven in part by big tech and people <clears throat> only following narratives that are affirming and it's not healthy for society, but medicine should be different. We should really see this and not participate in that sort of tribalism and yet we didn't. And so we, what we saw was tremendous groupthink. I can't tell you when I was trying to warn people about the pandemic and went well, a couple with a couple other doctors on this sort of media circuit telling people, hey, we're going to lose hundreds of thousands of people, if not more. And that's exactly what I had said early on. And we've got to take this seriously. <clears throat> people would kept, kept saying, well, the CDC website says this. Well, the NIH says this. Well, at some point, we got to think independently. And this sort of deferring to the group think did us tremendous harm when it came to warning of the pandemic, surface transmission of COVID-19, the lack of funding for clinical research on COVID early on, the draconian hospital visitation policy that didn't allow people to say goodbye to their loved ones in person, a human rights violation, something every physician should have stood up against? Who are we to tell somebody they can't take the risk of getting a virus to hold the hand of their dying father? I mean, that was inhumane, yet it was a groupthink thing. Everyone, every hospital fell in line. School closures, as you know, many of us spoke up very vocally against school closures of public schools. So here we have kids who went to private schools who thrived throughout the pandemic and kids who went to public schools who dealt with tremendous uh, um, you know, delays because of school closures. My niece, seven years old, has really struggled because of the school closures. And then she finally is starting to catch up academically and the school tells her she cannot come into school for a week because there might have been a close contact of an asymptomatic child. Well. She had COVID, she has natural immunity anyway. What are we doing? She tested negative, they don't care. Um, vaccine allocation we talked about, the sort of the decision paralysis we put states in and allowing for gaming of the system because we didn't have a simple age-based allocation. We didn't focus on first doses as we should have. We could have saved more lives if you've got 
people dying in the ocean, why give people two life preservers when people are dying with none? The interval between the first two vaccine doses was too close together. That was with good intentions that it was designed like that. But we kept saying, look, the more you space out any vaccines of any kind, the lower the complications and the better the immune protection. Finally, after two years of the pandemic, the CDC changed their guideline to recommend that. And they said specifically to reduce the risk of serious adverse events, specifically myocarditis in young men. Um, the cloth masks, boosters in young people, something that two top FDA officials left over in protest because there's never been any clinical outcomes data to support boosters in people under age 30. Uh, the undervaluing of therapeutics, not talking about things like fluvoxamine, which has two RCTs in JAMA and Lancet, yet never talked about. Uh, the CDC withholding data and ignoring natural immunity from prior infection. And as you know, my Johns Hopkins team did a big study on the durability of that immunity, and uh, it affirmed what we suspected and it's consistent with every other study done. Natural immunity is more protective against hospitalization than vaccinated immunity. Doesn't mean you should try to get the infection. Let's drop the paternalism that we have in medicine. And let's just be honest with people about the data. We fired those nurses who had natural immunity. They had circulating antibodies, but we fired them for not getting vaccinated. Turns out when we did that, we fired the nurses least likely to spread the infection in the workplace. You mentioned at the start about we need to change rules about educating and training medical students. I wrote a piece in my series on breaking the rules for Forbes, where I spoke about the fact that, as you said, memorization remains what we most value. We select people based upon their ability. The step one exam was it's now become pass fail, but it was memorization of 10,000 arcane facts, most of which you'll never encounter or use, but that's how we tested memorization. And it came from the 20th century when a 20 pound or 50 pound backpack would be needed to carry all of the medical information. We now have a smartphone in everyone's pocket. And why aren't we training people on how to access information, how to apply it, how to communicate it, how to work with colleagues around it? What are your thoughts? Clearly you've also been uh, surprised and distressed by how we continue to rely on a skill that has little application in the 21st century? Well, it's tragic because everything you say is correct, and yet the AAMC continues to inflict tremendous damage on a generation of young people who are trying to learn how to be great doctors. They're forcing them to do all of this rote memorization. And it comes at the exclusion of other important skill sets because when you, and this is per the students that I know and talk to, okay, this is direct from medical students. When you expect them to do a tremendous amount of rote memorization for um, big exams, and then tell them, there are here are these other important topics. They're not really that testable like the importance of self-awareness, humility, how to run a meeting, communication skills, what we call the non-technical skills of being a great doctor. You cannot have a written multiple choice exam for those 
non-technical skills. Yet those are as important, if not more important than the technical skills. And so the students are crying out. They're saying, look, we want to learn how to be great doctors. We want to learn the great bedside skill sets, but you're forcing us to memorize and regurgitate so much. Let's be honest. We got to focus and prioritize on something. And so we're going to deprioritize all this other stuff and focus on the rote memorization. So I'm told that um, David Scorton, who's head of the AAMC, that he gets it, but that he's just going very slowly in sort of reforming some of this stuff. I don't know. I haven't spoken to it personally, but the AAMC has too much, again, too much power. It's the concentration of power in medicine. It's not healthy. And by the way, many of these organizations lack diversity. Look at the editorial board of the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA. I think it was like one African-American out of 50 um, editors. One last question, Morty. You and I are both aware of the data on primary care, adding 10 primary care physicians to a community increases life expectancy two and a half times more than adding 10 specialists, about the importance of prevention and the poor job we do in the United States, about the opportunities to reduce complications from chronic disease. The list goes on. And yet in the medical profession, these activities are not given the status and the esteem that the data would say it should. What's your view and what are the rules that we need to break and replace going forward if we're going to be able, as you say, to make it a healthcare system, not simply a sick care system? Yeah, so I think um, it's a really good point you raised, Robbie. And unfortunately, what I just see is a lot of talk about racial and social disparities in healthcare and very little action. Now, my research team has basically taken the position this was a realization I had, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago when I realized, you know, I've, I've gone as far as you can go in academic medicine. There's nowhere really up to, to go. I have no interest in uh, being a dean and handing out diplomas on graduation day as much as I love students. And I don't want to be a um, administrator. I want to be a researcher. And so I realized there's nowhere else to, to go up. What are we doing just talking to ourselves at these conferences, going on panels and saying that, you know, it's, uh, it's important that we account for social disparities in health, and, but yet nothing happens. We're fooling ourselves, right? We're fooling ourselves. So what I'd like to see is some real action instead of words. Now, I think in this entire area, there's a lot of very specific times when you'll see sort of a complete reversal of principles. When the COVID vaccine suddenly became available, what you had was coming out of a very healthy discussion about racial inequality in America in the wake of George Floyd. The vaccine becomes available and immediately people in healthcare exert their power to insert themselves in the vaccine line ahead of um, vulnerable Americans, uh, spouses of hospital administrators, uh, 23-year-old esthetician in a dermatology clinic, um, you know, getting the vaccine first, bo hospital board members, 
um, friends of people who know someone on the hospital uh, administration or leadership. And so what you have is this sort of complete reversal of all the principles we just outlined that are important to racial equality. Then it happened again when testing became scarce and we insisted that colleges should be able to test twice a week routinely, asymptomatic, low-risk people, the lowest-risk people on earth. And yet there was not enough tests to go around in the community where, of course, we had vulnerable Americans who desperately needed to, to uh, get tested when they did have symptoms, not just for asymptomatic screening. So you may think, well, these are one-offs, but we continue to do this. This happens all the time in healthcare. It happens almost on a regular basis. We outline these important principles of social and racial equality within the medical profession. And yet we have these sort of emergency situations that hit us where we uh, sort of revert back to uh, the old ways of doing things. I think it's important for people to speak out. I'm still amazed that during COVID-19, the people who just decided to sit it out and not weigh in, all of the education psychologists, all the people who um, have committed their lives to studying the development of children, saw schools closed for a year and kids covering their faces with cloth masks for almost two years and didn't say anything. Just, you know, they said, you know what? It seems like it is concerning. I'm just going to sit this out. I'm not going to say anything. And so what we have is this sort of selective outrage on, around these issues. And I think we just got to be more consistent and be more intellectually honest. Unfortunately, right now, there's this sense of, are you on my side or are you on their side? What I call medical tribalism. And it's done tremendous damage within the medical field. I think we need to speak out against it. We need to call it out when we see it and say, look, this is doing uh, damage to our, to our great profession. The idea that we're going to be somehow tribal, the idea that somehow we're going to invite those to discuss an issue uh, who have like-minded views. Marty, thank you so much. You've pointed out many rules, several of which I hadn't even thought about before today, but you're absolutely right. If we don't break those rules along with the other ones, we're never going to have the system we do want and we'll never once again make American healthcare the best in the world. Thanks so much, Robbie. Good to be with you as always. Robbie, what do you think about what Marty said? Jeremy, Marty is one of the most prescient physicians I know. His views on the many unwritten rules of healthcare are powerful. In so many ways, his conclusions align with what you and I have been discussing over the past few years, both on our Fixing Healthcare podcast and on Coronavirus, The Truth. I concur with Marty that memorization is the foundation of medical education. That's an antiquated skill. That when it comes to COVID-19, one size doesn't fit all. And that the cost of healthcare is our nation's biggest challenge with the solutions most likely to derive from data and medical science, not anecdotal personal perspectives. I can't wait for the next time Marty returns to fixing healthcare. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. 
Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.